0: John Copenhagen and Al Warren heard on KCBO Warriors Point Five
2: FM Los Angeles,
0: one hundred two point three FM Riverside, and
2: one hundred five oh AM Palm Springs.
0: And joining us now, as we said before, on the line we have uh, Dr. Jacob Appel. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me.
2: Welcome, Doc.
1: My pleasure.
0: Um, Can I ask, to start out with, um, now you've written this book, uh, Who Says You're Dead? Um, What was the uh, basis and why did you uh, write this
1: book? Sure. So I've been a bioethicist at a bioethics teacher for a long time. And one of my great regrets is that there's so little opportunity in our society for ordinary people to talk about these important issues. And I wanted to create a book that was fun, and entertaining. That brings in examples from medical ethics, but also explains how celebrities and people in pop culture and historical figures have dealt with the issues to make it something more enjoyable for readers.
0: So uh, how is your reception on this so far? What are people saying about it?
1: Um, so my, my parents really liked it. Um, Others <laughs> are still out. Um, which is good, because my mother usually says she's a psychiatrist, is almost a real doctor, so this is a step forward. Oh,
2: dear. <laughs> uh, well, I can say I've really enjoyed it. I'm about halfway through the audiobook right now, and uh, I've, I've really enjoyed it. My wife enjoys it, too, and uh, we especially like the doctor's names that you've chosen. Uh, oftentimes, the pop culture ones like Dr. Honeycutt and Hawkeye Pierce.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that very much. So the other purpose of the book is that to drive a wedge between spouses when they argue about these issues.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, we do have good discussion about them, too. They're, it's quite a quite a fascinating topic.
1: Well, it's interesting. People often assume that their spouses or their children their loved ones share the exact same views that they do on these subjects, and they're surprised, sometimes pleasantly, not sometimes not, so to discover that people often, uh, who they know very well, don't approach the issues in the same way.
0: So so what were what some of the biggest things that you came across uh, as far as medical ethics?
1: Sure. So there are a number of issues related to the genetics revolution. Um, the most concrete example I always use with, uh, with radio audiences is I ask people, on your way to work today, how many of you locked your doors? And almost everybody in your audience probably said yes. And, um, when you left for work, did you dust the doorknobs off for DNA? And people look at you befuddled. Why would I do that? And the answer is because someone could steal the DNA off your doorknob, which is legal in a number of states, and they could use that DNA to discover health information about you or false paternity, and they could go find your father and tell you he's not your father. Um, So all sorts of implications of the genetic revolution. I can offer the audience one very concrete one from the book. A woman comes forward with her father to see if they are matches to give a kidney, um, to donate a kidney one to the other, and they discover that there's bad news and there's worse news bad news is that they are not potential matches and the worst news is that they are not father and daughter and then the ethical issue for the hospital is do they tell them or don't they tell them because if you tell them you risk disrupting their family life but if you don't tell them this young woman believes she has a false genetic history and might not get screened for genetic diseases
0: yeah that's crazy um we just had um carl kalperman who was a forensic um Artist and and I know that they um, do DNA through GedMatch and they um, quite often find out that people are not who they say they are from that. Um, So so it's quite a a legal problem as well, I I guess.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, People think they're related to other people. I I also offer the for people who think the previous question was an easy one, an even harder question. What happens if a couple if a couple comes forward to see if one can donate a kidney to the other, and it turns out there's good news and, quote, better news? They not only are a match, but they are actually siblings and didn't know it, which nope. can happen. Um, do you tell them? Because telling them will dissolve their marriage. Does the context matter? Does it matter if they're a childbearing age or they're past childbearing age? No easy answers.
0: Wow. So you're coming across this a lot, or...? <laughs>
1: I wouldn't say I come across all of these cases on a regular basis, but I've, I'm enmeshed in the bioethics community. So these cases arise with some frequency over a very large population. The odds of any one of these things happening to you are very small. The odds of something like this happening to you or someone you know are actually sizable.
0: So what are you what are you hoping people get out of this? Like when they pick up the book, what do you think they're gonna walk away with here?
1: Well, I think the most important message I want people to take home is we live in a very polarized society, and all of our discussions around bioethical issues are very charged, and nobody listens to each other. And I want people to understand that the people who disagree with them are not evil people. They simply are people who start with different premises and thereby come to different conclusions. But the only way you will ever get someone else to see the world the way you do and to be able to persuade them is if you understand that, that they are well-intentioned people as well. Um, and I think our bioethics discourse really needs that. The other thing I tell people is that bioethicists like myself are fantastic people. I'm biased, but I believe that. And we're great to meet at weddings and cocktail parties. We have stories to tell. <laughs> the one place you don't want to meet us is in the hospital. And the best way to avoid that is to think about these questions in advance.
0: So what do you think the the, the, the biggest question in ethics is when it comes to these medical choices. Like, you've given us a few, but what, what's the most uh, concerning one
1: for you? So I, I think it's hard to pinpoint one concerning issue so much as it's a cluster of issues that involve the balance between the public and the private and how one's individual private choices have large-scale implications. So a very concrete example I always offer is I decide I want to get tested to see what my risk is for Alzheimer's disease. Um, and there are ways of finding out whether you're at average risk, elevated risk, or extremely elevated risk. However, making that discovery often also tells you the risks of your parents or other relatives. Should you be able to discover that risk also knowing that you have health implications for other people? And that's a really hard question. And there are all sorts of variations in that that affect the public health.
0: How did you come up with the title for the book? Like, What, what, what made you call it this?
1: Sure. So there is significant controversy on the definition of death. Um, Mm -hmm. The vast majority of people and 48 states accept whole brain death, meaning you have no brain function at all as being legally dead. However, there are communities, religious, cultural, that don't accept that, that believe that until you are cardiopulmonarily deaf, you're not dead. Um, And in some cases, they wish to bring their relatives home on life support, so to speak. Um, The question is, should taxpayers pay for that? Should they be able to pay for it on their own? If my grandmother died and I wanted her involved and displayed in my living room like Lenin, we would not let me do that. But if you don't believe in, cardiopulmon- in uh, brain death, only cardiopulmonary death, maybe we do. But it's important to remember that death is simply not a biological construct. It has all sorts of legal implications. If you're not dead, you can keep getting Social Security, and your spouse can't remarry, and your children can't inherit. So letting people opt out of our definition has all sorts of large-scale implications.
2: Yeah, that is fascinating, especially for I'm, – I'm here in Canada, so uh, that would be uh, quite a burden on the taxpayer if, if you were able to bring your relatives home uh, on, uh, on life support.
1: Yeah, and, and so the other issue we have to ask in terms of society and the individual resources is are there limits on how much one can spend on one individual patient? One mm-hmm. patient in North Carolina several years ago um, cost $5 million a month in care. Um, it's $5 million a month, too much to spend on one patient. When you think about all the flu shots and mammograms and medical research, you could use that money on.
2: Right. I, I really enjoyed uh, the... Um, uh, I, I run a true crime podcast, so I enjoyed uh, the aspects of a uh, criminal admitting that he had done something in the past, and there was maybe no danger of him doing that again. Um and what's, what does the psychiatrist do with that information?
1: Absolutely, and there are no easy answers to that either. I mean, there are some legal answers, but um, ethically it's much more challenging. Most people can agree that if one of your patients tells you in a forward-looking way they're going to commit a violent crime, you should not keep your mouth shut. Not all. Some people would say that if you shared information, you make it less likely people will get medical care. Um, but if they're going to commit a nonviolent crime, um, that becomes more complicated and if they previously committed a crime, that has no further implications in the future. That's even more complicated. But the example I always use is what if someone has committed a crime in the past? There's no risk they're committed again. But nobody knows they've done this and they've hidden the body. And there's a family out there looking for that body or still thinks their relative is alive. Is That's the kind of information that one can divulge. Again, no we answers. And um, I, well,
0: one thing I was thinking of is... is um Recently, you know, there's people that get artificially inseminated and di- different things like that. And you talk about when they get a, a divorce, um, like who who gets the embryo, so to speak?
1: Yeah, can you even own embryo, or embryo is property? And courts have grappled with that significantly. Um, and does context matter? Can you make an agreement that you will, one of you will get the embryos, or you will have a child, or won't have a child? Um, you can't make agreements, for example, in advance that you won't pay child support, something simply right against our sense of decency and public policy. So does it apply to embryos, too? Does it matter if the couple already had children? Does it matter if the woman is now past childbearing age? Does it matter if one of them had cancer unexpectedly and was irradiated and can't have children in the future? So context makes a large difference.
0: Do you think the technology is going to go in that direction where you're going to be able to test um, out so many things about the baby you're going to have, and and whether you should or shouldn't, and and um, and even maybe even change the outcome of, of the birth.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely! We are almost there. Um, in some areas, we are already there. Uh, we can already do implantation genetic screening and diagnosis. Um, and the kind of issues that come up. There's a couple in Britain, Paula and Tom Lickey. They are deaf. They believe deeply in the value of deaf culture. They had a deaf daughter. They went to the British Fertility Board and asked if they could use IVF to create a second daughter who was deaf, knowing that there was a fifty percent chance they would have a daughter who was hearing, and they wanted to choose to implant the deaf embryo. At that time, the British Fertility Board said no. Um, good luck for them. It turns out they actually had a deaf baby the natural way. But those are the sorts of questions we're going to have to confront as society.
0: That's crazy. Um, well, how are we going to decide such a thing? Like. Um <laughs> the government? Or are we are we going to have to vote on it? Like where's where's this going?
1: I don't necessarily have an answer for the ideal way to decide these things, but I can offer an example of a bad way to decide them. A bad way to decide them is to put our heads in the sand like ostriches and let rogue scientists in Thailand or China or Mexico make the decisions for us. Yeah. And unfortunately, over and over again, that is what is going on.
2: Hmm. What about? Uh, What about uh, information that's found through, uh, say, for example, I haven't gotten to the part in the book, if it exists, uh, but uh, information found through, like, the Nazi doctors in Auschwitz?
1: Yes, so the question, historically, there was an argument that none of the research discovered unethically by the Nazis was of any value, so it didn't really matter whether we used it or not. Increasingly, some of that data has actually proved to be fairly valuable and abusive, medically or scientifically, and the question arises both whether sh- we should be able to use it and who should decide. Is it a decision to be made by a society, by Holocaust survivors, by their descendants? And also, how egregious does the research have to be? Um, some may know that there were research done on the use of different HIV drugs in sub-Sahara Africa in the 1990s um, that was questionably ethical, and um, several major American journals refused to publish the data and therefore changed research practices accordingly. So to what degree do we simply publish people's data, and who gets to decide?
0: Yeah, that is, that is quite the... Um, how strong is the doctor-patient
1: confidentiality now? Much less strong than it used to be. There was a time when doctors and patients had a true fiduciary duty, or doctors did the patients, and really nothing your patients shared with you could be divulged. Increasingly, we accept that doctors have a duty to their patients, but they also have a duty to society as a whole, and different states, different countries balance that in different ways. So a very concrete example is if a patient comes to you as a medical provider and says that they drive under the influence, they're, a, they're driving intoxicated on in a regular basis, can you report that, should you report that? And some jurisdictions allow you discretion, and some jurisdictions force you to report that, um, and some jurisdictions in the world actually might penalize you for reporting that. So lots of latitude. Um What I do think is we probably want to decide these questions as a society, rather than letting individual states or individual legislatures or individual doctors make the decision.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. Um, so now, what are, you, what are you planning to do next? Are you going further into this field and going to write another book?
1: I would love to write another book um, of similar dilemmas, um, and maybe eventually one that takes it outside the medical or scientific field to raise ethical questions about our daily way of living. Um, That being said, I started off this book with 150 scenarios, and because paper is very expensive, the publisher made me tear it down to 79. So I have a whole (laughs) stack of them waiting in the wings for my next option.
2: There you go.
0: (laughs) Now, does this this sort of polarize um, the way people um, view your book and talk about it?
1: So I think reactions to my book, um, on the whole, have been positive. I think people... They may be suspicious at first that I'm writing about ethics, particularly if they have strong religious or political views, but they realize I don't take any specific stances in the book. I think it's very important that I remain neutral. I simply show people how different experts, thinkers, and individual ordinary people have explored these issues. Um, Because what I tell people is in the hospital, nobody or very rarely does someone want the doctor or the emphasis to tell them this is what you should do, especially in an ethical domain. The two things they want, are someone to sit with them to explore what their wishes really are, and then to give them permission, in essence a secular blessing, to do what they want to do anyway.
2: And that that's why I really like this book and, and the fact that uh, I'm listening to the audio book with my wife, because we can have that discussion afterward uh, after you give your reflection. We can talk about what is our actual opinion on this and how do we feel about it, because... You can uncover your own uh, personal biases on certain things with this.
1: Oh, absolutely. One of the ways I designed this book, or we'll put it together, because it was written over a period of 10 to 15 years, is teaching both at Brown, at Columbia, at Mount Sinai. I gave a number of the scenarios to various classes of students. And based on the percentage of them that felt one way and the percentage of them that felt a different way, I readjusted them over the years, so they tend to break evenly down the middle.
0: Yeah, Oh, I was just going to ask if you got had to sleep on the couch a lot.
1: Um, Me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, both no, I do.
1: <laughs> I'm a writer in New York City, so I can't afford a couch. Oh. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Well, you know,
2: you know.
0: I, I mean, I'm just thinking of Mike's listening to it with his wife. Uh, well, uh, I
2: have to sleep in the backyard sometimes. So.
0: <laughs> you say the wrong thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Now, now. Um, Jacob, have you got a website or a place that kind of follows this that people can go to if they want to find out more about you and, and
1: your books? Sure. My personal website is www.jacobmatel.com.
0: Fantastic. And we'll have that up. And, of course, your book is for sale at all Amazons, and I see it's in um, hardcover audio and audio CD, Kindle. It's got the whole whole gamut. Um who said you're dad and our guest, the author of the book, Dr. Jacob Appel. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed the end. By George, he's got it. It is the end. I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production
2: of Something Wave Media.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European Linen